Good morning, Facebook, and welcome to the live broadcast of Tales from the Heart, a podcast brought to you by the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. Um, I am your host, Lisa Salberg, and today I am joined by Dr. Steve Nauman of the Mayo Clinic. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. And happy Earth Day to everybody. Um, we're all excited to keep our Earth healthy and happy, and today... We understand that in Rochester, Minnesota vicinity, there are some major thunderstorms rolling through. So if during our live broadcast, we lose Dr. Amon for a moment, um, he'll try to get back when he can. And I encourage him to know that you can access Zoom via your cell phone, which is a little bit more stable sometimes during an electrical storm. So um, it's April already, like the end of April. This year is moving right along pretty quickly. And April for HCMA is our theme of the month is genetics. And we thought we would start today by a really basic evaluation of where we are today in our understanding of genetics and HCM with the understanding that HCMA is about to um, embark on a two-year project to really raise understanding of the genetics of HCM and provide a lot more patient education. We're going to be doing a series of webinars through our Big Hearted Warrior tour on genetics. But today, I figured we would start with um, some perspectives from Dr. Amen on what do we know about genetics and HCM as of April 2022. And we'll take a moment to kind of dream about the future and what it might look like. So... We were both around when clinical genetic testing first became available for HCM around 2005 or so. Um, what do we know about the genetics of HCM and wh where do we start this? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really fascinating thing. And I remember back then how excited we were that we had discovered the first, well, what we thought was the gene for HCM. And then it turns out to be the first of, of many uh, associated with HCM. So, so we know that, you know, HCM is generally thought of as a genetic predisposition of the heart muscle being too thick. And almost all of the genes that have been associated with HCM are part of what we call the cardiac sarcomeres. So that's, that's the proteins deep within the cell that causes the, the contraction relaxation cycle of the heart. And so abnormalities in the genes that make up those proteins alter the way those proteins are either structured or function, which then can lead to the hypertrophy and some of the findings we have. We know of, of the genes, again, I'm speaking in generalities because there's always exceptions to these rules. The genes that we identify are inherited in something that, that genetics people call autosomal dominant fashion. What that means is it's not inherited based on your X and Y chromosome status. It's, it's non-sex related chromosome. So 50, each offspring has a 50-50 chance of inheriting that, that gene from the, from the parent who has HCM. Um, but we also know that there's about 40 to 50% of patients that have clear clinical hypertrophic cardiomyopathy who we, when we do our current genetic testing, we don't identify a, a, one of the genes that we know to be abnormal for many patients with HCM. So we do have a big knowledge gap uh, in that regard. So we know 
of the genes that have been identified, and sometimes there's a little bit of a language problem here because we've identified about 40% of people with HCM have an identifiable gene mutation, Mm -hmm. which doesn't mean that we found 50% of the genes. Right. There might be one that accounts for the other 60%. We don't know yet. Might be a thousand. There might be 10,000 different variabilities and multiple genes at play. So there's a lot that we don't know yet. But for those who have an identifiable gene, they kind of fall into a couple of different groupings, I'll call it. Mm -hmm. We have phenocopy genes. So it looks like HCM, but it's a different disease mechanism. Bannon's disease, Fabry's disease, amyloidosis. So we can use genetic testing potentially to take those individuals out of the HCM sarcomeric mutation concept and put them in a different treatment pathway. Would that be correct? Yep. Okay. That's right. Yeah. So that's when, you know, identifying the patient has amyloid and there's, you know, drug therapy directly for amyloid, identifying the person who has a syndrome of which thickness of the heart muscle is one component, but there are kidney abnormalities or lung abnormalities, or neurologic abnormalities is super important for those patients. And when somebody comes to a center or goes to a doctor and they have a thick heart that looks like HCM, it might actually have a different etiology. Yep. So finding that out yep. early is important. Yep. So why is it that genetic testing is important for that group and then for the others? Why, what is the value of genetic testing in 2022? Yeah, that, I mean, I, other than what, we've, what you mentioned already, and that is identifying. So if you're looking at the echo or the EKG or the MRI, and there's, there's certain patterns that the people that read those can see. So this doesn't look like classic HCM doing the, the gene testing for those phenocopies or HCM mimic conditions, it's important, again, to get those individuals on the right treatment path for their whole selves. For the patients that truly have HCM, if we can identify their disease-associated variant, um, then that becomes a great way to know who else in their family is at risk for developing HCM and who in their family is essentially at nil risk for developing HCM. So it's, its biggest utility is in family counseling and family screening algorithms. So let's take an imaginary patient okay. who has classic signs of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Let's just middle of the bell curve in terms of anatomy. And they come up to the Mayo Clinic and they say, what do I have? Who are you doing the genetic testing on? Are you doing it on that individual? Or are you doing it on their offspring? Where do you start? So you always start with the patient who has the condition, as, as you said, and then you go to the next closest relatives. So children, for sure. Siblings, most, most often. If the siblings are reluctant, sometimes you can go up to the parents and if neither parent has the, has the variant, that means that the patient you're seeing was the start of the cascade and the other family members might be free. But generally, we recommend that all first-degree relatives, so parents, siblings, children, uh, are who we screen 
And then you just chase the positives around the family tree or in more of technical terms, we call that cascade genetic testing, meaning if, if your sister is negative for your genetic variant, your sister's kids don't need to be screened. But if she has your variant, then you start testing her children. So the way I like to try to explain it to people is when they're drawing out their family tree, you want to go up, over, and down the family tree to the points where it ends. So if you're up to parents and there's nothing and it's just the patient, you don't necessarily need to do the overs, but you need to do the down because that gene is flowing downhill. Right. Right. Um, if a child is diagnosed, you know, you have a teenager who's diagnosed, we want to go up to the parents yep. and potentially to the grandparents yep. and then over to siblings right. from there. Yep. So we bring in the whole family. Exactly. Which is an entirely different podcast of how do you get your family on board and communicate genetic risk to a family? I could talk for about five hours on that topic alone, yep. but do you have any pearls of wisdom in terms of helping communicate to your family members about risk and the need for screening? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And, and, as, and as you know, you have to kind of read the room uh, and this, in the unique family circumstances. But you often have patients say, oh, you know, I've told my siblings about it and they're not interested in getting tested. And that's, that's fine. Um, but the, I will usually have the conversation and say, I understand that choice, but, you know, they have kids who, you know, are teenagers and maybe it's important for their kids to find out for their hobbies, activities, or other medical conditions they're being treated for. If you know you have HCM, it's going to change your doctor's choices of drugs for your hypertension or for ADHD in a kid or some of those kind of things. So there are implications beyond just, yes, I have this. So what? It, it actually changes the way some of your other non-HCM care might be handled. And I think it's always a bit of a powder keg because you don't know how your family member is going to take getting medical information from their sibling or their cousin, et cetera. Yeah. HCMA has created some tools to make it a little bit easier that you can just text some information to your family so it's not coming from you. Um, it's coming yeah. from an outside source of here's what you need to know. And of course, they can go to the website. They can go to the Mayo's website and get some great information and guidance there. So let's go back to our imaginary patient who has a very classic presentation of HCM and they have genetic testing. And for the purposes of imaginary person one, we find something in the testing, mm -hmm. but it's currently being diagnosed or indicated as a variant of uncertain significance. Yeah. What does that mean? Is that something from the Princess Bride? The <laughs> R-O-U-S is the rodents of unusual science. Um, One of my favorite movies. Thanks for the callback to there. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah. So, so V-U-S means that the, so you think about genetic testing as, as, as a spell check for the way the, the DNA is encoded. And so it's detecting something that isn't spelled the common way. But based on analysis that people way smarter than me can do, well, first they can determine actually this isn't the most common way, but it exists in all kinds of other people who don't have HCM. So therefore probably not significant, but it isn't quote unquote normal or common. Um, and so that's the most common reason why something is a VUS is, is usually 
genetic testing individuals that if we find it, they will go look at a sample of people who are known to be normal. I'm using air quotes for those of you who are just listening. And, um, and if they also find that misspelling amongst normal people, it's going to start to slide into this. We don't know whether this is really a significant thing. The implications of that for the family is we can't hang our hats on using that variant for their family screening. You actually then have to use imaging, echo or MRI to screen that family uh, because you, we don't know that that VUS is actually causing that individual patient's HCM. Let's talk about that for just a second. So yeah. before the genetic age, yeah. how would we screen families? What would you do? Yeah, so, so, so the most common thing is you also tell them to get their first degree family member screened by, with echocardiography. And if they're adult age, we kind of said do it every three to five years because we do know that some people can develop thickness of their heart muscle not when they're teenagers, but when they're even in forties, um, it tends to not happen that commonly, but it can. So we say every three to five years until people are retirement age or something like that. So an echo and EKG, a checkup with a cardiologist who knows about HCM would be the main line. This is how we screen. If we were able to look at genetics, the VUS result doesn't lead us anything different than what we were already doing. It's, it's basically a, this test wasn't helpful result. And then you just kind of, you, you almost ignore it. We, you tuck it away. So then there's the other result that is the most common result. And it's often misunderstood. Yep. If somebody has genetic testing and no causative mutation or VUS was identified and they say a negative test. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the difference between negative and no mutation found. And yeah, so and well, for that, so there's a couple of different categories. Um, there's actually a bunch of categories. So there is a category called pathogenic variant, which means all the science, all the understanding of molecular structure stuff, and and whether it occurs in patients with HCM only and no one who doesn't have HCM is pathogenic variant. There's a, there's a slightly grayer shade called likely pathogenic. Then there's the variant of uncertain significance, which is the unknown. But then there's two categories called likely benign and benign. So these are misspellings, but based on all the molecular and protein science, people then it's, it's actually occurring at a spot in the protein that wouldn't change the function of the proteins at the cellular level. So it would, well, it's a misspelling. It's like the difference between spelling esophagus with an O and without an O, whether depending on which side of your Atlantic line, you still pronounce it esophagus and we still all know what it means, but it's spelled differently. Those are benign differences in spelling that don't have any function changes. So, and then, and then you have a negative genetic test where no misspellings were identified. All the spellings and the things we checked for are, are known accepted spellings in, in, the, in those genes. That doesn't mean you don't have HCM. It just means that your spelling is right. In the areas that were checked. In, in areas that were checked. Exactly. So if we don't know where to check, yeah. you can't look for a spelling error. And we are evolving. I mean, when we started this game of genetic testing, I think there were three genes that were originally offered, then it was five. Mm-hmm. And now some of these panels have over a hundred different targets that they look at. 
Can you talk about the evolution of single gene testing versus these group of genes? Yeah, this this is a, another example of computing power, you know, solving math problems for us. So historically, it was a very manual process, almost taking, looking at individual genes, individual spellings and those types of things. And just the way computers and computing power have gone up, we can scan way more genes, including just some we think are in the vicinity of things, or we can even actually just scan whole chromosomes and, and look at things in a much more speedy way. But given how big the human genome is, there's going to be, if you screen, if you do what we call genome-wide testing, you're going to find a whole bunch of misspellings. And then it's a lot of, a lot of work to understand whether any individual misspelling means anything or not. So the heavy hitters are myosin binding protein C, myosin heavy chain, troponin I, um, some of the other big ones. Um, I'm losing my. So, so, so some actin, troponin actin. T, troponin T has uh, variants in it as well. So there, there's a number. And I would say in all of the experience of the HCMA, um, the ones that come back gene positive are in those five to eight yeah. genes. Yeah. And then you get these rare, like unusual mutations that have cardiac involvement. Yeah. And may or may not be specifically related to HCM, but might be related to a dilated cardiomyopathy yeah. or to um, non-compaction cardiomyopathy. Right. So, so those particular conditions both have variants in myosin heavy chain that result in either non-compaction in some of those families in dilated cardiomyopathy and some who have familial dilated cardiomyopathy. And depending on where it is, that can also result in HCM. So it, it depends on where and what this misspelling is in the sentence structure of the DNA. So sticking with the genetic testing concept, yep. um, you do the testing and you find a gene or you don't find a gene what are the clinical implications yeah. today for that gene? Yeah, that's that's a it's an important point. So we were really excited back in the 2000s that gosh, maybe myosin heavy chain people had these set of of outcomes or consequences, and myosin binding pro protein C people had this different set of implications to their HCM. Turns out that doesn't really hold true. You can't do gene-specific prediction of you're going to get atrial fibrillation or you're going to need a myectomy or you're going to need a defibrillator. That We had lots of hope for that and it just hasn't panned out. Practically, there's not much we can do with it. We do know from data um, published by the SHARE registry team that people that do have a genetic variant in their sarcomeric proteins have to have more complications to their HCM than people who either have a VUS or, or no variant found. Um, but it's not the kind of thing that then you can interact with that. It's just knowledge about that person. Maybe you follow them more frequently than, than you would someone whose, whose gene panel is completely negative, but there aren't any current therapies that would allow us to change the natural history of those, those conditions. That's the disappointment of the hope that we had, you know, yep. 15 years ago. 
um, that we thought we'd be able to use it for something more functional. It's not there right now, but there is still value to testing and there's things coming down the pike that we're going to want to be prepared for, I believe. Um, I do want to take a moment to talk about, you know, the downstream implications of genetic testing potentially. Um, Number one, once you're clinically diagnosed with HCM in terms of protections from discrimination, you're covered by the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, on the federal level. And there's a lot of state regulations as well that may also provide you some protection from your status of having an abnormal heart. Then there's this other set of laws back in 2008. So genetic testing was just kind of becoming clinically available. And uh, myself and a lot of other patient advocates hit Washington, D.C., to lobby on behalf of something called the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. And this act provided protections from those who were being screened in families, who could have access and who could do something with the information about your genetic testing. And that um, turned out to be, at the end of the negotiation of 11 years for that law, um, that health insurance companies cannot use genetic information to rate policies. Mm -hmm. Um, Employers cannot use the information in any way, shape, or form uh, to uh, give employment, gain employment, use against or for you. Um, And educational systems cannot use the information at all either. Uh, The life insurance companies and the uh, long-term disability companies can use the information for purposes of rating doesn't mean they will disqualify you, but they can charge you a different rate based upon your genetic status. And I think it's always important to explain, as bizarre as it is, that the federal government is not held to these laws. So if you're working for the federal government in the military or in any other branch, this information may be used, but I have yet to see any company, any branch of the government use information in a discriminatory way since the onset of Gina. The reality is we all have genetic mutations somewhere. Somewhere, yep. So, you know, looking like, oh, I don't want to get genetic testing to see if I'm at risk for HCM because somebody might use it against me. Um, I can't say it can't happen, but we have not seen any proof that it has happened. Um, And your medical information is safely contained in your hopefully protected medical records. Um, And nobody should be able to have access to that information that doesn't have a legal right to do so. So I think in 2022, people can feel very confident and safe about participating in genetic testing when there is a risk for something as significant as HCM within a family history. So in your opinion, who should be screened genetically once they're diagnosed with HCM? Well, you know, I, I talk to all my patients about the option for genetic testing. I think anyone, anyone who wants to be screened, assuming they've, that they, they haven't had a family member with clear HCM who did the testing and it was negative, but if they're the first individual in the family, I offer it to all of them. I think that I'd rather have them opt out of genetic testing for unique circumstances. Some of the things that you just mentioned uh, and another thing is there's affordability issues just up front. Uh, it's not like it was before where it might have been a four-figure out-of-pocket expense for a patient if their insurance didn't cover it. They've capped that, but it still is not free unless your insurance plan happens to cover it. And the yield, this issue is, 
Actually, yeah. at this moment on April 22nd, 2022, just about everybody in the United States should be able to access it for free because we have industry supported genetic testing. Awesome. Um, so both um, Invitae and uh, Ambry mm-hmm. both have industry supported. Let's talk about what that means for just a second. Yeah. Yep. Um, there's no free lunch. Yep. But sometimes you might get one that has a cost that you don't have to pay. Yep. <laughs> um, so how does this work? And this sounds a little convoluted, but it's kind of simple. HCM is the catch point for a lot of other diseases, as we mentioned at the start of the podcast. And some of those diseases have therapies that are available, but these patients are very difficult to find. Mm-hmm. Um, they also happen to be very expensive therapies. Yep. So the companies that have created those therapies have supported genetic testing for those who might be patients and they pay for the genetic testing. And the deal is that when you fill out the form for one of their programs, they can, the genetic testing company notifies a physician or the, the industry that a particular physician has a particular patient that is unnamed, unidentified, that has a marker for something like Fabry's disease or amyloidosis. And that physician is then contacted by an industry representative to say, hey, I know recently you did genetic testing on somebody and it came up with one of these mutations. We have this drug available. We don't know if you were aware or not. And that is the cost of the test. The doctor pays the cost by getting the call from the rep. Um, The patient is never involved in that. And the patient identifiers are not utilized. So there's no, um, there's no transfer of information about the individual. It's the opportunity to educate the doctor. So because that is the current state of affairs, um, patients with HCM in the United States can at this point access free genetic testing uh, no out-of-pocket, nothing uh, to pay. Uh, and you can get the information on the Invitae program on the HCMA website. We've just become aware that Ambry set up a, a very similar program. So we're working with them to, to get that information on our website so that we can provide that to everybody. Awesome. So yep. it is kind of a free lunch at the moment, but now you understand how it's paid for. Yeah. Um, I like yeah. transparency on those things. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, so thank you for, for that in, in several ways. But so, yeah, so I talk to all my patients about the option of genetic testing, encourage them to get it, but don't like require an individual family to do it. That's part of the discussions we have that we codify under the shared decision-making rubric to say there are circumstances where sometimes it doesn't make sense. If you are um, adopted, and have no, you don't know your siblings and have no children, uh, it, it probably isn't going to be particularly useful for that individual to get genetic testing unless they have features that suggest one of these other conditions, right? So you're, you're looking for diagnostic possibilities there. But no, I think, I think it's an option because again, you can, you can relieve anxiety in entire branches of your family tree uh, by finding who's negative on the family tree. So it, it can be very useful, but, but recognize that there are important familial, unique family circumstances where they say, no, thank you. And that's okay. Yep. It, it's another tool in the toolbox. Because we have, we have an alternative, 
it's not like, you know, because we can do echoes, uh, it's not like we're going to leave that the rest of that family unscreened. Uh, if the if the pro band, the individual with HCM decides not to get genetic testing, they're all alternatives. So, so I, I will turn this a little bit personal for a second. I had genetic testing um, before it was clinically available. I was part of research. We found a mutation. I'm a myosin binding protein C. This is what it looks like. Looks like a lot of other things too. Um, but I will tell you, at that point in time, I was able to screen. Uh, younger family members, including my daughter. And we had knowledge early on of who carried the gene and who didn't. Even people who had not expressed HCM yet, we found out they were gene positive. So we were a little confused because people we thought had it, had HCM clinically, didn't have the gene and Mm. turned out that their hypertrophy was related to a little hypertension. So it, it cleared up a lot of confusion in the family and it also allowed me as a mom to think out activities, lifestyle, and encouraging career paths for children, um, my own and my sister's, when they were young enough to you know, have these conversations and say, hey, you know, certain types of work might be better for you when you're 40 years old versus today, and you may want to you know, keep those options open as well as athletic participation, what might be better for you at this point so that we don't have to take you out of something later. Um, That turned out to be a very expensive proposition in my book because my daughter became an equestrian. Um, Mm -hmm. So be careful. (laughs) You may end up spending a lot of time at a barn, Um, but we made choices as a family that we felt fit better for the future. And I'm happy I had that opportunity. Um, And I think for me, it provided some peace of mind, even though in our case, everybody that could be diagnosed genetically was, we Mm -hmm. didn't get any misses. So that dominance was there, Um, but we knew and we could prepare and we could make decisions fully informed and participate fully and shared decision-making every step of the way. So I like more information rather than less information. And for some people, they might prefer the opposite and personal preference. Okay. So we've covered quite a bit in less than 30 minutes. Um, And I will open up to questions if anybody has any. I'm watching on the Facebook stream here. So if you you watch me with my eyes going down or looking at the phone, because that's where I see the Facebook feed, because they don't allow us to see it on Zoom. Um, so I'm going to go to the future for a moment here. Nobody knows what's coming. However, um, there are some plans in way at this time where there are companies being organized to provide genetic based therapies for HCM. It's early, 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 early days. Um, And they each have very different concepts on how this might play out. We're not going to dig into all of those different concepts today. But given the fact, and I'm going to sound like we're going to sound like old people here for a minute. We've both been around the block a few times. We've seen the next greatest thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've seen the answer multiple times, which turned out not to be the answer to HCM, but an additional tool in the toolbox to combat the complications of HCM. What do we think might 
be happening? Where do we think we might be in 10 years? You know, it's, it's a, it's an important question. And I think there's a concept that's important to get across when you say genetic based therapies. So everyone that's probably listening to this is more than aware that we're all anxiously awaiting FDA approval of a new agent that has been targeted HCM and it's been targeted at the genetic consequences of HCM, the fact that the proteins work abnormally. That isn't necessarily considered genetic therapy. Genetic therapy is when you actually try to go back and normalize the DNA code of the individual to, to make the cells structurally and functionally normal. The myosin inhibitors that are being investigated and under FDA review right now don't change the DNA code or the protein structure. They change the function that's happening that's, that's abnormal and try to normalize that through their actions. So we, we, we presume, hopefully uh, with the current agent that's under review, but there's some fast followers in terms of other similar compounds that in the near future, we're going to have myosin inhibitors in our toolbox to treat those patients who, who need that option. The future is, again, some brilliant people trying to figure out how can we take an individual whose DNA code is abnormal in a way that's resulting in HCM and normalize the DNA in their heart muscle cells so that they don't have the consequences of HCM. And there are a number of methods by which that might be accomplished. HCM is particularly challenging, I think, in that regard. If you have, if you think about other conditions, non-cardiac generally, where there's a single genetic abnormality that results in this thing, it's a lot easier to target a single gene, single abnormality for a genetic therapy than something that has hundreds of, of known genetic genes and, and, and variants that are involved. And then this large group of patients who don't have a single nucleotide abnormality, who maybe have multiple genes that together are making a recipe that resulted in HCM. So it's a, it's a super complicated thing in HCM, but I have no doubt, uh, as you're well aware, that companies are working on this. And at some point it becomes a problem of math. And so far we mostly solve math problems eventually. So everything is math. Yuck. <laughs> I'm not a math fan. So um, I think it's an exciting time for HCM. Um, the next 14 days proved to be quite interesting. Yeah. Um, and then beyond, uh, I, I agree with you 100% on, you know, we, we've got targeted therapies at a particular mechanism of why our heart doesn't beat quite right. Mm-hmm. And we're going after those, those, you know, myosin inhibitors and, mm-hmm. For those with dilated cardiomyopathy, myosin activators. So we, we figured out a new place to, to treat, which is great. Um, we did a, a, a session on our um, podcast and, and webinars with uh, the folks from the Dannons community, which is, for lack of better terminology, a phenocopy of HCM. It looks like a thick heart, but it's got a very different mechanism. And there is a targeted gene therapy that's under investigation right now for that particular um, mutation called LAMP2. Um, So these are all really specific and really targeted. And it really gets into personalized medicine kind of in the way that we dreamed about it 15, 20 years ago. But it's got a lot of consequences that society has to get ready for. Yep. 
and we conceptually have to get ready for as a community. And that's part of why we're starting to take a deeper dive into genetics so that we're not trying to catch up mm-hmm. when clinical trials might come up. We're trying to keep everybody informed as we develop out this understanding and that the community of all stakeholders asks really good, smart, intelligent questions, not only on mechanism and science, but on ethics and responsibility. Um, and it's, it's uncharted territory, people. Yeah. And we're all going to have to get there together. Is there any, um, oh, what's the, what's the right word I'm looking for here? Uh, what, what should we be excited about and what should we be worried about? I think we should be excited about the fact that there are drug companies and scientists that are excited about HCM as a potential uh, target for new therapies. I mean, as, as you lived uh, and uh, in several different versions of living through it, no, HCM was not really considered a primary goal for any of the therapeutics that were being developed in the industry. It was almost an orphan disease. Um, uh, And now with genetic understanding that we've learned over these last 20 some years of people collecting genetic information, a class of agents was finally invented myosin inhibitors that you know, so far is showing some pretty favorable results that it's going to be helpful. And gene-based therapies, can we go back and alter the DNA code of someone in those specific areas to result in improvements? So I think we should be excited about the attention we're getting as an HCM community and as individual patients who have HCM, that there's attention. People are, people are looking for options for, for all of us now. I am... Um... Agree completely that it's it's a good time to have a bad diagnosis. <laughs> yeah, now, now we, we also have to be aware uh, of something called the Gartner hype cycle, and that is unbridled enthusiasm. You know, we get these great things, and then there's usually this, it's not quite as great. It was as pitched, and we go through something called the valley of despair, where we get disappointed, and then after that, you kind of hit the plane, where it's like, ah, this is the practical application. This is the sweet spot for whatever it is, a, a technological solution, uh, a procedure or a drug, there's going to be this, this ebb and flow of a lot of super, super excitement that maybe is over-enthusiastic. And then there'll be pessimists that are overly negative, And then eventually we'll, we'll find the spot. And that you alluded to it in your comments, is this the next big thing? You know, we've, we've seen things proposed before and they get that peak that this is going to be the solution. And then they, they don't, some of them no longer exist as primary therapies, and some of them have found a spot where they, they have a, a very distinct role in the management of HCM, but it hasn't replaced everything else as was originally proposed. So we'll see that with the drugs therapies as well. So just as a historic evaluation of some of these pinnacle moments and drops to despair, um, when I kind of came on the scene in the HCM world in the 90s, Uh, At first, as a patient, I received a dual chamber pacemaker, and that was going to cure my HCM. That's what I was told. Um, That didn't happen. Um, And I find it kind of ironic that I was at ACC sitting two or three seats away from Rick Nishimura uh, uh, just 
two weeks ago in D.C. as the results of the Valor study were announced at the first session of ACC 2022. And he looked at me and he said, go slow. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, I've been there with you, honey. I know. Um, So unbridled enthusiasm was the word that he used back then. And we, we reined it in and we figured out with the empathy trials that like where it actually sat. And then alcohol ablation came on and that was it. That was going to be the cure for everybody. And we didn't have to operate anymore. It didn't work there either. Yeah. Um, so myosin inhibitors, a lot of people are really excited. And next week is going to be a big week. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to have some exciting news. And maybe in the next two to three weeks, patients will start to get access to clinically available Mavicampton if the FDA gives their approval. We're still yeah. waiting that. Um, I want to take a moment at this kind of historic pivoting moment while I've got you on a podcast and we're a week away, less than a week away from the PDUFA date, which is when the FDA will report back to BMS what their findings are and what the label might be. What does Steve Almond think of this moment? Well, I, it, you, it is historic. It, it's, it's a pivot point, but how hard that pivot is, what the angle from the current pathway is, depends on a couple of key things that we, well, three things that we don't know yet. One, is it approved or not? Yep. We, we most of us are presuming it's going to be approved. Mm-hmm. But then there's two other things that will impact its uptake in utility. One of them is just the straight up cost of the agent, which we don't really know yet. Um, There are smart healthcare economic people who kind of have made some estimates and where it's cost effectiveness lies, but we don't know how BMS is going to price the agent. Hopefully it'll be affordable because of the fact that there are other drugs in the pipeline that are gonna have similar mechanisms of action that maybe will keep them from, you know, getting into the amyloid territory in terms of a price for, for the agent. The other one is not the financial costs, although it's indirect financial costs, but the logistic costs, because we are, we're anticipating because of some uh, adverse reactions in up to 10% of patients who took the agent, that the follow-up is going to be rigorous. And that might not fit well in people's lifestyles or you know, available to them, depending on where they live in the world uh, for the agent. And so if those two things end up being favorable, I think there'll be more use of the drug. If they end up being unfavorable, super expensive and logistically challenging, uh, then it, it won't get as much adoption. That said, in both scenarios, there will be people who will benefit from this drug or this class of drugs. Let me, let me just put it that way. So it's, it's uh, there, you know, all the studies, almost all the parameters pointed directionally the right way. Whether someone is, uses it as their, what I call destination therapy, it's, it's the therapy they need and they don't need any more. There'll be patients that have fallen into that category. Or they might get it as a bridge to myectomy or ablation. It's not available to them right now, or they have other circumstances in their life that they, that they know they want to get that because of their particular anatomy. Let's try this agent in the meantime to, to, to buy me six months or nine months or a year because of th- some things going on in my life. And there'll be some patients that where we use it actually as a, as a diagnostic trial, when you have someone who has multiple reasons for their symptoms, and one of them happens to be HCM, 
we might try using this agent to see, does their, do their symptoms get better? Uh, well, if so, then it's the HCM and not the obesity or asthma or whatever else is the cause for their shortness of breath. And then that might make sure that we focus our attention on all the options that way versus treating the other causes. So it has some diagnostic potential as well. That's a really excellent point that I really haven't spent a great deal of time on because we know that, um, I would say in HCMA's experience, those who've gone on to myectomy at high volume centers, somewhere in the 85 to 90% range, there's a lot of symptomatic improvement, quality of life improves drastically, but there's this group who doesn't seem to get better with a myectomy. Um, And rather than going through a whole surgery, if they're one of those people that you're really not sure, and you and I have talked to enough of them to kind of know, we'll try, but it's not clear. That's a really great place to use it. I hadn't really given that yeah. a lot of thought. So thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, um, yeah I, th- I, th- I think that's going to be an important step for, for exactly for that. Gosh, you do have obstructive HCM, but your obstruction doesn't seem as bad as your symptoms. Uh, and now we'll have an option to try to melt that gradient away, at least temporarily to see, is, is that what made a difference for you? Or is there other stuff that we need to address? Okay. And you just put something else in Lisa's decision tree when we're trying to advocate for people and say, okay, now you need to think of this, 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 this. The decision tree is quite complicated, but um, it's really good to have a lot of options here. So in terms of um, going back to our topic, because of course I had to go on a a rant on Mavic Hampton because of the timeline here, Um, going back to genetics and the potential new therapies that might come down the path in my experience, specifically with the Mavicampton out, you know, development and other drugs that I've seen come and go, um, I think we're talking about a 10-year cycle here. That maybe 10 years from today, I'll have you back on a podcast. And I was that good, huh? We'll, we'll, we'll be older and, and, and a little more broken down by that point. And I'll say, oh my God, remember when we talked about the concept of genetic therapies? Yeah. But I don't see it evolving out any faster than an eight to 10 year kind of cycle. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't have any any knowledge to refute that. I, I think that's as good a guess as any. Um, oh, simply guesses here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Genetics answer questions in HCM to help us identify phenocopies versus sarcomeric mutations versus unknown mutation. Mm-hmm pretty easy there. Patients with HCM should consider genetic testing um, for anybody who has a clinical diagnosis. And we definitely encourage, and we didn't really talk about this, communicating with a genetic counselor to help you identify your risks, to understand the meaning before you go ahead and do it. Yeah, very good point. I mean, I mean, you know, the physicians, doctors, nurse practitioners all have different levels of understanding about the genetic testing. Genetic counselors, it's their job to understand what the genetics mean. And so every patient that gets genetic testing in our clinic actually sees a genetic counselor. I don't just rely on my knowledge of it. I bring uh, Lauren and Alana in to talk to them about what the implications are before the patient decides whether or not to proceed. Although we're doing this in the wrap up, I can't state firmly enough how important genetic counselors are when I'm working with people all over the world and they say, well, I had genetic testing and there's no mutation found. So I don't have HCM. 
and they shut off. Right. I'm like, oh, you didn't have counseling because if you had counseling, you'd understand that that's not what the result meant. Yeah. And it can be really confusing if you don't truly understand the science and what we were looking for and what we don't know how to look for yet. Um, One question we didn't go over. Um, How often should somebody go back and repeat genetic testing in the event of VUS or no mutation identified? Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a challenging area. So one of the things that's for sure is we as a community should be looking every three to five years to make sure a variant wasn't reclassified. Most importantly, is if someone was, some patient or family was told that they had a pathogenic variant. And then over time, we realized that actually is seen in other conditions, not HCM. So therefore it's not necessarily HCM causing and it gets reclassified into that VUS zone. That means that family can't rely on the genetic testing for their family's peace of mind. And we have to revert them back to an imaging protocol. And so again, just a swag, but just re-verifying the status of a family's identified variant and whether it still falls in pathogenic or not uh, is an important step that should happen every three to five years, just just for their making sure we're, we're doing right by their family. In terms of submitting new DNA samples for testing, that's, that's a harder thing because, because we're slowly growing the way that we're doing genetic testing. There hasn't been this major quantum thing. If we got to some quantum change, uh, then I think we're going to have to be, you know, through your group and others communicating to patients like, you know what, if you submitted a sample 10 years ago and we're told you were negative, it's time to do it again because the ball game's changed, but we haven't, we haven't, I haven't systematically done that. And with someone like you, if you had come back negative from your research sample days, I would have to get in clinical testing now because the, that ball game has changed from the late nineties and early two thousands. And thank you for bringing that up. Cause something did happen in the past oh, year and a half or so where we had a young couple use genetic testing data from about 2010, 11 to go forward with, um, PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnostics to try to create a child without HCM. And it turned out that the pathogenic mutation that was held by parent was identified and taken out of the equation and child does not have that mutation. However, the parent was not tested for a newer variant, Mm -hmm. which did show up in the child um, as a possibly pathogenic mutation, but it's a single mutation as opposed to the parent who had a double mutation Mm -hmm. that was not identified 10 years ago. So if you are considering PGD, um, I would really encourage you to get a current generation genetic test to look for all targets. Yeah. And another thing (laughs) on the VUS front, Um, I've been participating for the past four years with a group of researchers on an NIH uh, funded study on the question of how to evaluate VUSs over time. 
Yeah. And there's a paper that is expected out later this year on the findings of this committee, which I was honored to be a part of, about how we might want to evaluate going forward. This came into health economics, lab responsibilities. How long does a patient-doctor relationship last when you do a test? There Mm -hmm. were a lot of ethics questions brought up about who owns that data and how we update that information. And it does turn out to be something that is very much a shared process and not one person should be responsible. The patient has responsibilities. The clinician has responsibilities. The lab has responsibilities. And then there's the old question, who's paying for it? Right. So it's, it's an interesting paper. There's not a lot of massive conclusions as to it should be A and B, but we know as a healthcare system, we need to start thinking about these particular topics and creating infrastructure to deal with it. Um, So that will be coming out hopefully by fall. Good. Yeah. All right. Any closing thoughts today? Oh, goodness. You know, I, I, I think that it's maybe implied in what we've said, but we should state it explicitly that one of the roles of genetic testing may not help the individual patient who did the genetic testing, but it is the people who did have genetic testing that allowed us to do research studies in science that have led to understandings about the natural history of HCM and then to drug development uh, as those variants were identified causing this actin myosin abnormality. So there are benefits to the greater community of HCM if you do consider doing genetic testing, even if it doesn't end up being helpful for you as an individual or even for your family. I think that is an excellent point. And I am looking forward to a couple of other trials that I've heard being developed, specifically looking at the no mutation identified individuals. And I'm hoping that HCMA can can take a leading role in helping recruit patients for trials like that in the future. I don't have any information at this time on opening any trials. So don't write me and say, I want in. Um, I appreciate that, but I don't have anything to tell you yet. When I do, we will post it. You will know it and we will encourage you to participate. And I think it's a great wrap up on this week before PADUFA to say that we don't move forward without patients, clinicians, researchers, and industry working in collaboration to do really robust, great clinical trials and and do the research. We don't know enough yet. We know a hell of a lot more than we did 20 years ago, but we don't know it all yet. And we're all going to learn it together. So to all of you who have participated in clinical trials, thank you. To those who've designed it, thank you. To those who funded it, thank you. Where I'm only here today because of clinical trials, not necessarily just for HCM, but for transplant, Mm -hmm. we didn't do the work. I wouldn't be here. So reality touch that clinical trials mean better lives. So participate if you can, people. We can put that out as an advertisement for clinical trials. There you go. Absolutely. All right, Steve, thank you for your time today. And thank you for your time yesterday. We'll tell everybody what happened yesterday. The HCMA had its first official inaugural meeting of our medical advisory committee uh, in new form. And um, our co-chairs include 
Yours truly, Dr. Steve Amon, uh, Dr. Martin Marin, and Dr. Carl Hornig, who is on our board of directors and is an epidemiologist. Maybe his name is not as familiar to the community. And we have an amazing, robust group of diverse stakeholders. And you're going to see that all listed on the website shortly. But we were really excited by a, a good starting point. And we know we have a lot of work to do, but we're looking forward to doing it. So thank you. And that's it for today's Tales from the Heart. Um, and Sean will be editing and you'll get this uh, wherever you get your podcasts real soon. And don't forget to share it. Thank you so much. Have you enjoyed this episode of Tales from the Heart? We hope so. Please visit us at 4hcm.org. Become a member, become a donor, become a volunteer. Great news, everybody. HCM Academy is now available online. What is it? It includes online sessions, learning about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, patient stories about HCM and their management, and an opportunity to join online live with an HCM specialist to go over the slides, ask questions, and dig deeper into your understanding and knowledge of HCM. All CME courses are free, and you can find them at 4hcm.org or at thehcmacademy.com. The Big Hearted Warrior Tour continues. For the latest dates, please check 4hcm.org. And thanks to our sponsors, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Cytokinetics, Invitae, and Austin Scientific. Did you know discussion groups are available at 4hcm.org Monday through Friday? Almost every day you can find a discussion group, whether you're interested in learning more about ICDs, pre-myectomy, screening your family. There's a discussion group for you. Even if you just want to learn how to balance your mental health, we have that too. So please join us for one of our live discussion groups moderated by a peer volunteer and you can sign up in advance at 4hcm.org just check the calendar for events. Please contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association at 4hcm.org or by calling our office at 973-983-7429. You can contact the HCMA by email at support at 4hcm.org. Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the HCMA, is made possible through sponsorship from Boston Scientific, Cytokinetics, Tanaya, Invitae, and Boston Scientific.